This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. AOPA presents Never Again, true pilot stories from the world of general aviation. In this episode, a multi-day cross-country in a neglected, derelict float plane. What could go wrong? Find out in Float Plane Pain by Pat Heseltine. As with most bad decisions, this one started with good intentions. In 1981, I was a 24-year-old pilot and an A&P mechanic with more than 1,000 hours logged, including 600 dusting crops. We owned a beach musketeer but wanted something more versatile. A friend told us about a Cessna 185 on straight floats that was up for auction in New Iberia, Louisiana, the heart of Cajun country and a world away from our home in Washington. It was taxiing across the water when a crosswind tipped the wing and left it floating upside down. There was no structural damage, so the airplane was flushed with fresh water. A new starter, magnetos, and spark plugs were installed, and the engine pickled with fresh oil. But the insurance company wanted it sold. We bid $15,000, sight unseen, and won. Clearly, we paid too much. Two young pilot friends and I took a commercial jet to Louisiana in March and drove to Pelican Aviation's ramp where the airplane was sitting. It was structurally sound, but a pathetic-looking derelict with swampy orange and white paint. After sitting for months, the cowl flaps and controls were frozen, the sagging headliner was full of mud, the instruments were all half full of water and it needed a manifold gauge, fuel flow gauge, airspeed indicator, tachometer, and altimeter. At this point, it's worth noting a large body of medical research says the brain is fully developed by age 25, but emotional maturity is different. A 2013 British study reported women don't reach full emotional maturity until age 32, Men take an additional 11 years to reach emotional maturity. Perhaps that, and our meager budget, helps explain some of our decisions. For instance, to prepare the airplane for flying more than 2,500 miles over four days, we visited the local auto parts store and purchased a Stuart Warner oil pressure gauge, connected it to the engine, 
and hung it outside the airplane's glove compartment. We borrowed and installed an old tachometer and manifold pressure gauge from a Cessna 2 trusting they would work, but we didn't replace the broken compass and the radio was intermittent. Topping off this aeronautical stack of Jenga blocks, we replaced the alternator with one from a car. That component lasted about five minutes into our first flight, meaning we had to remove the heavy battery every afternoon and then find someone with a charger for an overnight boost. Only one of the three of us, not I, had any float plane time, a mere seven hours in a Piper J3 Cub. That was seven hours more than he had spent in a Cessna 185. A storm was rolling in the day we were ready to depart, so we were in a rush to take off despite the 20-knot crosswind ripping across our aquatic runway, which was really a drainage ditch. One of the veteran charter pilots who landed as we were heading out passed us with a dazed look and said, My God, I hope I never have to do that again. We looked at each other and seemed to share the same thought. We're just taking off, not landing. Shortly after liftoff, our pilot asked for a heading to Houston. I said it should be on the map. Okay, he said, give me the map. The problem was all our charts were back in Pelican's office. We had a robust debate, which included the charter pilot's comments about his landing, but decided to land. The guy in the office said, I can't believe you came back. After our legs quit shaking, we took off again and headed west with our maps, which we soon discovered were expired and featured some float plane facilities that were out of business. We might have been more concerned, except it felt like the tail was coming off because the airplane was vibrating in flight intermittently. Looking out a side window, I saw a shadow on one of the floats that showed a brace violently moving up and down. Also, the stall warning continually sounded like a distant whistle. Fortunately, both were easy to fix during our first landing. When we reached Houston without a functional radio, we did circles at the far end of the field, anticipating a light signal from the tower. Since our 60-gallon tanks only provided three and a half hours of flying time and we were running low, we finally decided to land. Naturally, the tower phoned down when we landed and asked why we never contacted them. I explained what happened and got off easy, but I suspect many people we've met felt the sooner we were out of their airspace, the better. The first evening, we landed on a lake north of Dallas. Heading north the next morning, we landed in drainage canals, ponds, and rivers, figuring out how to get avgas as we went. Sometimes fuel trucks would drive to where we were. Other times, we ferried fuel in a half a dozen five-gallon containers we carried in the airplane. Our day's final destination was Yankton, South Dakota, which has an Army Corps of Engineers facility on Lake Yankton, near the Nebraska border. After landing, we tied the airplane to a dock sitting by itself inside a compound, surrounded by hurricane fence. After scaling that fence like Spider-Man, we walked into town and got a hotel room so I could plan the final 1,500 miles of our journey. I called my cousin 300 miles north in Mobridge, South Dakota, and said we should see him around lunchtime. Great, he said, before asking how we would land a float plane on the Missouri River when it was iced over. Granted, this was 1981, and weather information was harder to get. 
but I should have made a few calls before leaving Washington earlier in the week and checked out en route conditions. We decided to return home by commercial jet and come back when the ice was gone. Before leaving Yankton, we jumped the fence again near some no trespassing signs and a half a dozen Corps of Engineers trucks soon arrived. After explaining our predicament, they let us leave the airplane tied to the dock with our promise to be back soon. Three weeks later, the pilot and I returned with my dad in his musketeer. We cruised 200 miles to Fort Pierre when the Cessna's fuel pump quit working. That required us to pull the pump, walk to a farmer's home in the dark, and then visit the local crop duster to rebuild the pump in his shop. When we finished, it was held together with baling wire and duct tape, but worked well enough to start the engine several more times and get us safely home. The 185 eventually was refurbished. It is now flying in Alaska. There's an old motto, all's well that ends well, but like many broad statements, it requires some qualifiers. Despite having lots of diverse experience as pilots and mechanics, we were ill-prepared for this adventure. If someone has concerns, it's a good idea to speak up while slowing down the pace. It's also a lot safer and less stressful solving problems on the ground than in the air. The Never Again Podcast is brought to you monthly by AOPA, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. You can find more Never Again stories online at aopa.org by typing Never Again into the search box. While you're there, check out AOPA's mobile flight planning app, AOPA Go, as well as the many free training and safety courses from the Air Safety Institute. Find all of this and more at aopa.org. The Never Again podcast is produced by Royce Earl. Thanks for listening. Fly safely. Fly safely.